I, I wanted to know what, um, what wasn't addressed in the movie was what is the relationship between the Higgs and the unification of the nuclear weak force and the electromagnetic force? Um, the standard model um, incorporates the unification of the two, and and the Higgs is part of that. So, um, you know, at the uh, at the very basis of the standard model, uh, we need to have the Higgs to have it make sense. So it's not the thing that is unifying it, but the fact is that uh, the standard model really only makes sense with the Higgs in it. Um, mathematically, um, even sort of phenomenologically in terms of these, these particles having mass. Um, without the Higgs, all the particles would be massless. Okay, we, we, we know that in fact it was, it was actually the problem of the mass, of having the mass of the W boson, uh, which is the mediator of the weak force, that really drove the necessity of a Higgs. Uh, and, and, and getting that mass was what was uh, the big step that actually Steven Weinberg made. So, you know, all the attention goes to Peter Higgs, um, who mathematically, you know, came up with this idea. But it was actually other people like Weinberg who realized it could be incorporated into this structure, the standard model that we have, and it could give the Higgs, it could give the W boson mass, um, but allow the W boson initially to be uh, seen as sort of a symmetric partner to other bosons in the electromagnetic uh, force. Does that make sense? Uh, I might actually add that you might be asking how the director is so eloquent about the science. And I think part of the story of this film is about the team and a certain unusual uh, level of backgrounds that he's brought to. Yes. So uh, I, I, I studied... Uh, Elementary particle physics 30 years ago, um, and uh, amazing, amazingly, this was the issues that were still actually being worked on now. <laughs> What's the state of uh, particle physicists now? Are they excited, depressed, baffled? Uh, how, where, where's the field going with this? Yes. <laughs> I, I would say all of the above. I mean, I, I, you know, it's interesting. There, there is really a, I think here again, we're now seeing a really big distinction between the theorists and the experimentalists. The experimentalists are excited um, for the most part. Uh, they're busy getting ready to start up again. Um, you know, uh, they, this is almost his, history for them now. And uh, they've been doing upgrades. They have started it up. Uh, Mike Lamont, who is our, you know, our character at the LHC, the, the, the Brit, I mean, he's really at the center now of getting the machine ready to go. And you see him in the news all the time that, you know, he's telling what he's saying. And they're about to go. Meanwhile, they totally ripped out a lot of Atlas and they've been replacing that. So they're very excited about what they're going to find. Um, the theorists are worried. Honestly, um, you know, because in some sense nothing has changed. I mean, there's this great accomplishment that completed the standard model. I mean, having the Higgs, which is great for the people that predicted the standard model. Um, for the people that are mostly featured in our film, um, they're still really waiting to see what's, what's going to be there. So I think there's nervousness. Um, what do you, how important is the difference between the CMS number and the Atlas number? Uh, it's not really considered significantly different, actually. So it's, it's considered that they've confirmed it, you know, together. 
Could you elaborate a little more, if you could, uh, about why the, uh, the, the relatively high value of, that was confirmed for the uh, Higgs um, mass uh, would preclude uh, supersymmetry or, or the um, supersymmetric particles? It doesn't entirely preclude them. Um, you know, we, to a certain extent, we, you know, dramatized it uh, a little more than it is in terms of being a complete bifurcation. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it's like, you know, you, you get the impression, we don't say this, but I know that we sort of give the impression that, you know, it has to be this or this. It's really a continuum. And um, there are similarly theories that in a sense are a continuum. And there are theories that can accommodate a multiverse and supersymmetric part particles. Um, what is true is that um, in order to be supersymmetric though, it doesn't fall comfortably into the uh, simplest supersymmetric models. Uh, so, you know, all these models, they have lots of different variations. You can vary ver things, you can, you know, stick in additional you know, terms and things like that. The, you know, most common supersymmetric models do require a lower mass. But there are, as I say, mixed things. Um, David, uh, um, Savas, and Nima have all worked on things, you know, called split supersymmetry, which allow the possibility that some things might be uh, only explainable with, super, with, with, with multiverse, but there could be supersymmetric particles. Well, then let me, let me rephrase my question. Why is the current theory of the multiverse and supersymmetry, uh, why are they mutually exclusive? I'm not clear on that. They're not. So, so that's uh, actually what I'm saying is that they, they are not exclusive. They are, there are theories that could accommodate them. So, you know, if you think in terms of the multiverse, the, you know, the, the big thing about the multiverse saying that there are certain numbers in our theory that we will not be able to explain because they are random in the, in the, in, you know, in the multiverse. What could be is that there are multiverses and some of those numbers are only explainable this way, but some of the others are not going to need that, that they might be explainable by uh, supersymmetric part, partner, you know, partners. Uh, what was, uh, what is there about the Higgs? Uh, what was there about the Higgs that made it as elusive as it was, as opposed to the other uh, particles? One of the things was the weight, the mass. So, uh, you know, being able to have an accelerator that could uh, generate energy or mass enough to be able to see it. I mean, so in a sense, that's the most obvious thing that was, that was there. Uh, beyond that, it's also, it decays very quickly. There's so many other things it can decay to. Um, they didn't know exactly where they were looking for it. But principally, they, knew they needed to get to the energy of the LHC to be able to see it. I just wanted also to comment that these questions are... Um they're, they're pretty great in, in, in terms of the science, and one of the goals of the film more broadly was to make audiences, uh, broad audiences, feel that they were insiders into the, the adventure, the pursuit. And, um, you know, it was the, the sense, the Higgs, the God particle, had to be found, and yet 
the physicists had moved on to asking some of these questions. And one of the real goals, problems, and I think uh, the back and forth during the, uh, during the making of the film was how to do that. Certainly the kind of comic, um, the, the 24-7 news cycle, you know, represents that other audience. And, you know, the goal was to kind of have all of you really feel on the inside as part of it. So... Well, you succeeded brilliantly in that, and and uh, I'd, I'd like to, uh, to to bring you in as as director and producers um, to um, talk a little bit about what what did you find to be the the greatest challenges in creating such a seamlessly exciting and engaging film. Well, one thing that wasn't a challenge was finding physicists who could explain what they were working on to ordinary people. It was the most incredible thing that there were so many scientists who could have been on this screen because they loved explaining what they were doing. It was absolutely um, amazing. So I would say the big challenge, we have a lot of physicists on the cutting room floor now because we just couldn't squeeze them in. But um, that was not a challenge. I think the biggest challenge was creating the a dramatic arc that would keep everyone sitting in their seats wanting to know the ending of a scientific question along with the people in the film that's that was really that is what filmmaking can do at its best but that is very very hard to get to i mean i would just adding to that what andrew said from the parallel or the, the, the counterpart of this, the hardest part I think really in the end was how do we incorporate the science and not lose the audience. And that we knew we had this great dramatic story, we had great characters and you know, uh, a, a profusion of characters, that was not the issue as, as Andrew said. The problem was how do we explain the things that people need to know to understand why they should be excited and where do we do it. And, and the re way we did it was basically we initially constructed the film without the science and then we put it in at the end um, as needed. And so the mantra was just enough, just in time. And uh, I think another critical element of that was we essentially came up with a, a, a lexicon for this film. You know, and at a certain point we just said, these are the terms we are going to explain, and these are ones we're not. And, you know, in the end, it required a lot of rigorousness to just decide. And, you know, even, I mean, one example being the multiverse. The multiverse physicists use many terms for that. Uh, anthropics, multiverse, uh, naturalness, environmental. And we decided it's going to be the multiverse in this film. And I literally went back and had people re-record lines if they didn't use that word. <laughs> I just want to add that it was um, part of that challenge was, I, I don't think there was any one way that we did that. I think what Mark just said is it was critical and it, deciding what concepts to explain, when to put them in, the kinds of graphics um, and so forth. But it was also other um, aspects of audience engagement that I think are particularly relevant for this audience. Um, what does a character, what qualities of character are needed to foster engagement, identification, engagement of curiosity, and the, and the feeling that one really thinks that one feels that one is kind of understanding it enough to feel engaged and, and, and on the edge of your seat. 
Um, and part of it is, is certainly the kinds of characters that they were. Not only were they really great science explicators, as Andrea says, but very, very authentically who they are and very much, I think, uh, just, it sounds like a cliche, but it's really true, really human, you know, really engaged in a huge pursuit and passionate about it, also having human scale ambitions, also being funny, and also, um, you know, so that was really important. And another was, as we all began through David and through Mark to understand, and the two of us non-scientists, some of the, the larger stakes, the emotional implications of those stakes, the sense uh, that this could, even though the, the, the helium leak that caused this huge hiatus was a technical, um, you know, a mistake in the infrastructure, but it did reflect a larger concern that we had come to understand in the field, the sense of what if nothing is found, or what if the Higgs is found and nothing else, and a sense that this could be the end of a branch of science, and what, because they were so passionate, you know, what that means for an individual scientist, not only in terms of one's own life's work and legacy, but in terms of the fact they're all in it for a larger reason and that this could be a smack dead end, which of course was a very um, compelling imaginative concept as well. Hi, yeah, um, along those lines, one of the devices I really enjoyed was um, like the confessionals that you had. Um, so I, was, I wanted to hear kind of like more about, the, like the part where people sort of like recorded themselves on webcam, right, and you had them, um, I wanted to kind of hear more about like that process. How did you focus on the one, um, I forget, the experimental girl who really you, you showed a lot of hers. Um, and was there a difference between her like as an experimental physicist versus a theoretical physicist? I just thought it was really cool and wanted to hear more. We, we actually stole that idea because a lot of art is uh, imitation except better. Um, we stole the idea from a film called Baghdad High in which kids um, in Baghdad were given cameras to record themselves because Westerners couldn't really go there to record what they wanted to record. And it seemed like a way, it, it, in the beginning it was very tough because we didn't know if anyone would speak honestly on camera and they were all kind of, well, should she wear makeup and she doesn't look very good and is she going to later say, this is Monica, I, I don't want to see myself looking like that. It is just amazing that the scientists really got into recording themselves at critical moments. I mean, we have some moments on camera where you really see people depressed and scared, and um, David himself uh, recorded himself many, many times, including during his tenure decision process and all kinds of, uh, we have, we actually have um, a wedding that isn't, that on the cutting room floor. I mean, so the scientists were really into it. What? Two weddings. Two weddings. Two weddings. So, I mean, we, we were invasive in ways um, that we wanted to be invasive. Um, and we were lucky that the scientists themselves took on so much of that burden because that's often why documentaries are not personal, is people just don't let you in. And we had scientists who were willing to let us in. It was amazing. I would say, just in terms of the differences between theorists and experimentalists, yes, experimentalists did it, and the theorists thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> did I came across on camera when they were talking? I was 
absolutely. Monica, you know, you know, she just did it. You know, theorists. I mean, it took a lot of work to get them to do anything. Usually, with Savas, I'd have to have his student actually set up the camera. I thought what you did so incredibly well is the background of the images and the, the implication that human imagination has been working on this from the beginning. The mandala shapes that you used and there's all these alchemical images of the world that are so much like the images that you used. But the question is, wasn't God particle a term that was used in a derogative way by someone who was mocking the Higgs boson. I mean, they did. It wasn't the physicists who were looking for it. It was somebody who was commenting on it. It was a physicist, actually. Who commented? The apocryphal he, story is that yeah. Leon Letterman, who is a, an experimentalist, he wrote a book, and um, he uh, he had proposed the title, "The God Particle." Uh, I, I, he he actually no, <laughs> he actually wanted to call it the goddamn particle, and the uh, publishers said that that was not acceptable. And uh, physicists don't like the term, as we've said, because of the associations. But um, and uh, you know we we tried to give that you know impression as well um, from a filmmaking perspective uh, and uh, publicists' side. It's great. <laughs> Were there any regrets expressed uh, by Texas or otherwise for uh, not moving forth with this? I mean, this obviously created, a, it seems to me, uh, uh, the Internet was associated with the creation, and there was a, certainly a lot of economic uh, activity that would have been lost to Texas, for instance. Yeah, I, you know, we actually shot quite a bit more in Waxahachie. Um, we had actually, it's also on the cutting room floor, we had a lot of things down there. I went down there with David and actually filmed him seeing it for the first time. And the images you see are, are real, actually. It's very sad. And when I was doing the location scouting, I was just driving around, and right near where the collider was, there was this tiny little town. I mean, it's just the quintessential little one-street, you know, dusty town. And we went in the cafe. I, I went in the cafe as before we started shooting for uh, lunch. And I started talking to the owner, and I said what I was doing. And he walks over, and on this top shelf, he pulls down this baseball cap and dusts it off. And it says, uh, Waxahachie, future home of the SSC. And uh, it, there, was, there was a real poignancy to it. They thought this was going to be it. This would have been the center of you know the world, basically. People had moved down there. I know physicists who moved down to Waxahachie who had been living there and uh, they had quit their other jobs or they had gone down there, they had moved, they had set up their, you know, their, their families there. And um, when it was canceled, it was a huge blow. A, a number of them left physics. I mean, it was actually, you know, one of the first impetuses for uh, physicists to go to Wall Street. I know a couple in particular that did at that point. So it was a huge blow. You know, I, we showed the film, and it's shown in Texas. Uh, I was at the USA Film Festival down there in Dallas, and, you know, uh, people were kicking themselves. And one thing that's very interesting is that um, the uh, country that's building the collider that's going to be three times as big as this one um, is probably China. 
And the idea that you have these experiments and that attracts the best minds from all over the world to work in your country is um, something that, I mean, we would like to see that come back to America. That was a little underlying theme in, in our uh, goals in terms of making this film, that a real, it could be a real national, we, the idea that we would get the country sort of craving for more science education was certainly something we thought about. I, I don't know about that. I mean, I know that there's talk of different ways of doing it. There's the fundamental question is, do you make a linear collider where you just slam things into each other or, or, or into a target, or do you have the circular one? Um, and, you know, the technologies, you know, it's all about it. The biggest challenge technologically is keeping these things going in a, in a, in a circle. I mean, uh, you know, things want to go in straight lines, and it takes more, uh, more and more energy to keep them going. And it's a, it's a, it's a balance, um, uh, you know, in terms of the, the larger, you know, the larger you are, the 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 larger the radius of curvature, the less energy you need. On the other hand, it it's bigger and it takes a lot more space, and they always have a trade-off between those two elements. I mean, yeah. Um, in terms of the um, the Waxahachie uh, footage, it was something of a debate within our team. S clearly, that decision was, um, in terms of science education advocacy, you know, the film could have emphasized that a lot more. Um, and it's certainly, as a nation, we are very aware of the kind of topical relevance of that. Um, it, it was, I think the way that it ended up being there was just the right one in terms of the vision of the filmmakers that this, um, of course the hope, one of the hopes is that excitement about scientific discovery and the education that is needed, the resources that are needed to uh, accomplish that at every level is really important, but it was not the vision of the filmmakers to be an advocacy film per se, and um, you know that this could be a jumping-off point, and, and we certainly are hopeful uh, and laying some of the groundwork for that. But that is one of those decisions, and uh, it was interesting back and forth that debate. I went two weeks ago to the Brookhaven uh, National Labs to the NSLS. To the uh, inauguration of the um, 10,000 times brighter light uh, that Brookhaven has now, which costs $912 million of taxpayer dollars and is free available to various countries and so forth. I read the comments to the article that I wrote subsequently, and many of the people who commented were furious that it wasn't built by um, private industry rather than by government money. And I found that crazy because I think these kinds of things can't really be done comfortably by private industry, the same as CERN isn't really comfortably done by, you know, individual businesses uh, in a coalition. And I was wondering if um, that was exceptional, that the comments that I got that 
this was um, unholy or somehow improper was uh, typical of what kind of reaction people might have had, not this audience, obviously, uh, to the film and the money that was spent for the film and showing what you showed. I, I, um, we haven't had that reaction. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting. One of the things about this is, and, and about the SSC, is I think that this also is a good example, or, or, or it really it really points to the future that um, experiments of this order are not going to be able to be done for the most part by a single country. Uh, a lot of people would say that one of the problems with the SSC was that it was so U.S. controlled and so U.S. centric and that there were other people in the physics community that objected. And within the U.S., um, you know, there's a lot of debate about whether the physicists themselves jeopardized it because of all of their debates about where it should be. Um, and, you know, people in you know, Chicago or Fermilab, they wanted it there. There was a big push to have it in California, uh, out at Stanford. And there was Texas. Why did Texas win? You know, um, did the physics community come together and support it and, and in the way it should have? There's a lot of debate about that. Um, and it was very much run by the U.S. And I think uh, there are a lot of people that feel that in the end, it, 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 it had to be an international collaboration. And anything in the future is going to be because they are so expensive, it's going to require that. And I actually think that's a great, a great thing. I think it should not be a nationalistic thing. I think that in some sense is the point of the film, is that it shows that this that's, what's, that's why CERN was created. CERN was created in the, in the 50s in the aftermath of the war expressly for the peaceful pursuit of science. No military research um, and all these countries who had been formally, very formally, uh, very recently formally uh, fighting in some cases are, are united. And so I think it's very appropriately a, a government funded international uh, collaboration. Uh, regarding the SSC, some, some of us have heard that um, the reason it was canceled is that President Clinton at the time uh, made an offer to the governor of Texas, Ann Richards, that sh they could either expand NASA, the space program, or uh, continue with the SSC, and Governor Richards decided that NASA is more appealing to uh, public sentiment. They could put on a, you know, a bigger splash with NASA, which is more easily understood than particle physics. Uh, did you, in your research, did you find out, is this a true story or is this just rumor that it was a political decision that was made? And in fact, Steven Weinberg, who's at the University of Texas, uh, said that he kicked himself for not getting more involved in, uh, in fighting you know, for the SSC. I, I've heard this. I did not find out anything more about it. I mean, you know, Clinton's role in it has been debated. Um, uh, in the end, he did come out for it, but he did not express the strongest support. People, people do criticize him for not having expressed the strongest support initially. Whether uh, he had some deal with Ann Richards, I, I don't know that. Um, uh, it was certainly political. I think that most uh, physicists now blame themselves that, that at a fundamental level they did not communicate to the public why this was important as opposed to something like the space station or something like that.
And I, I do feel like we've seen a, re a reflection of that. Even at CERN, they are incredibly supportive of, of uh, you know, all sorts of outreach and media and things like this. So, um, I, I, you know, and that's something that was motivating all of us uh, as well. Other uh, questions? I'd, I'd like to actually ask a, a naive question on my part, perhaps. But is, is, is there a possibility that with um, uh, higher energy colliders, that other candidates for the Higgs could be discovered? You know, in other words, this thing sitting right in the middle, is it possible that if, if, uh, uh, if a particle at 115 or at 140 uh, MeV turns up, that this, uh, you know, would challenge the conclusion that, uh, that this particle is the well, Higgs? Well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, erase this one. So, right, you know... Uh, but as, but as the Higgs. As the Higgs. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, there are theories that have other, more than one Higgs, um, and even, you know, in supersymmetry. So there could be other particles. You know, what physicists really, you know, they hedge their bets a little. They say it's a Higgs-like particle. And what that means, and is true, and that we know is why is, it's unique, is it has certain internal properties that a Higgs has, particularly it's a scalar, what's called a scalar vector boson. And that has to do with its internal spin symmetry and other internal characters, characteristics, which we had never seen before. So we know this is a particle that has properties we have never seen before and are consistent with the Higgs. Could there be others? Yes, there could. Um, I don't think anybody thinks they'll be at lower masses. I think that, you know, they really feel they've sort of explored that. Um, but could it be at higher? Yeah. I mean, they would love to find something, and they would love to find something that doesn't fit. <laughs> I mean, that would be the greatest discovery of all. This is also a totally naive question, but what does it mean to see the Higgs boson? Because we don't see them That's see a very it. good question. That's not a naive question. Um, yes, you actually never really do see the Higgs. I mean, um, as with most of these things, uh, uh, the Higgs itself uh, lasts so, so, uh, such a short amount of time, but immediately decays into certain things. And, and uh, so, I mean, uh, if you take a very simple macroscopic thing, uh, uh, you know, uh, neutrons are not infinitely stable. They actually decay into a proton, electron, and a neutrino. And the theory tells you what could be the different processes that a Higgs could decay into. There's, there's different pathways. There's different channels, they call them. It could decay into a certain number of photons. It could decay into a certain number of electrons or, or other types of leptons. And so uh, what you're really looking for are the signatures of a process that could be the Higgs that don't match anything else. But that's a really incredibly difficult thing to see because there's trillions of collisions happening and all these other things are decaying as well. And so this is what, essentially this is what experimentalists do in, anal in, in analysis is they, they try to look at all the different you know, pathways and correlate the ones that you know, would match because they match the energy of what was coming in and they match these other internal properties. They, okay, no, these are all things that we know but these two things coming out here, they don't really match with anything else, but they're consistent with what our theory says the Higgs could decay in this way to be. And that's what they're, that's what they're looking for. 
Um, okay, so you've, you've kind of touched upon this a little bit, but I was wondering if you could go a little bit more in depth in the, the feedback and the reception you've been receiving with the film. Like, has, has there been any more discussions being sparked in the physics community about outreach or like science advocacy and education? I'm curious in that aspect. Um, the physics community has totally embraced it, uh, which is absolutely, uh, really, really satisfying. I mean, you know, obviously, uh, David, of course, in some sense, had the biggest stake of all because he, he still has to face all of his colleagues. And, uh, you know, uh, they really, you know, I think trusted us in a sense to tell the story, but we were worried for sure. You know, would they really be comfortable with it? And they have totally embraced it. I mean, for them, it's become their anthem in some sense. And in fact, at CERN now, they've told us CERN has a little, uh, a little uh, souvenir store outside of their thing. And they want to make Particle Fever like their definitive D DVD at CERN. Um, in, a, in a deeper way, the um, symbol of the um, standard model, the circular image with the Higgs at the center, this didn't exist in the physics community. Um, Walter Murch came up with this, our editor. Um, and, you know, they, their representations were like these odd charts and the Higgs was sticking off here. They did not really get the parallels and the symmetry. And Walter became obsessed with something that was symmetric and that placed the Higgs right in the center, which is where it should be for our film, but also for, for the standard model. And um, it has been completely embraced by the physics community. And they now want to make it like their symbol. And so uh, 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 Nima was wearing a T-shirt with it at some physics conference. And everybody went wild. And, and they were blogging about it. And they want to put it on their mugs and things like that. So that's pretty much being embraced by the physics community, I'd say. Yeah, you can all buy them, too, on the website. Uh, on the website, that's right. Um, but I, I just wanted to add to that. Um, certainly, the, the film has gotten great reviews and, 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 you know, if you look at Metacritic, if you Times, LA Times and all of that, I mean, it, I think that in, in, it really did succeed at what was the goal to cross over from being a science doc to being a doc that was a real, really received broadly. That said, it, it wasn't easy and the process of the making of it, the decision making in terms of getting it out there, um, you know, we ha we've had our lumps and bumps. I mean, in, in many ways, um, it sort of paralleled the, um, the, the, the topic of the film itself in terms of successes and failures. But, um, but it's, it, it's certainly the fact of the nature of it probably limited to some degree the, you know, how many people in the academy saw it, for instance, and that kind of thing. Um, but it certainly has had um, and continues to have. We're very proud that it is, I think, the second highest grossing um, doc of 2014. And it was really distributed in an, um, not in a traditional way because we couldn't get the attention of, of agents. Um, so that's, and we certainly are intending the, 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 the educational uh, distribution is beginning and we certainly are intending to make the distribution and also the outreach impact, which can go in many, many directions as, um, as strong as, as it possibly can be. The film has a science um, curriculum that was created for it by, um, so that teachers can use it um, in, the class, in the classroom. And um, right from the beginning, we thought about how the film would, 
would have an impact, specifically would have an impact on the teaching of science because we thought the story was so inspirational to young people because young people could perhaps picture themselves um, if they weren't theor... I think I always thought science was just being a theorist and you had to be Einstein, um, or physics was. And when you see Monica, you know, talking about her hard hat and her boots and how she's doing wiring, you know, putting little wires together, I think that it certainly, for me, broadened my sense of... And also that it was so collaborative, which was something I, I never really thought about. So we thought the film would be very inspirational to young people. And David was involved in something called CorkNet, which actually trains high school teachers to, um, to get their kids to analyze actual data sheets. Um, and there are, I don't remember, 4,000? How many CorkNet teachers were there? There were a lot. Um, and it, so we already were thinking right from the beginning, could high school students see this? Could college students see it? Could it play in science-type uh, societies like the Society of Mechanical Engineering or whatever? These are um, all over the country. And we gave a presentation at a major conference for um, science museums and technology centers, and that was right even before, I mean, we barely had a trailer at that point, but we, were, we really care about the film getting out there. So if any of you have, are attached to organizations that might want to show this for any reason, that's, we really care about that kind of alternative distribution. I'm a total lay person, and my mind is just going all over the place. And I have a twofold question to, that I could ask, sit here and ask you like a hundred questions. But when did you come up with the idea of, of doing this film? How long did it take you to do this film? And uh, the other question is, when they actually had the um, collisions, um, you know, the, at the first time around when the helium leaked, there was these areas that they didn't consider, right, of the consequences of other, other things that had to do, um, that were part of the environment that would create the collision, or would allow the collision to happen. But when the actual collisions did, in fact, take place, what were the consequences? I mean, the explosions, did they just stay contained? Was there a fear that there could be, like, a really big, like, accident? Or, I mean, yeah, it's like, what was the... You know, because the media plays it up as like uh, the black hole and we're going to disappear. But was there actually a fear of, oh, God, did we not consider something and it could, this could go really, really wrong? And how, I mean, what were the implications of that? Um, okay, I'll start, I think, at the beginning, which is the beginning, uh, how the film started. The film started in the mind of David Kaplan, um, a theorist um, who had a theory that um, a film about this thing turning on could be dramatic and exciting and interesting. And, you know, David says, you know, probably as early as 2006, he was, you know, always telling his family and friends this thing is going to turn on and it's going to be amazing, amazing, amazing. And somebody said, you know, okay, stop talking about it. You know, you should do something. And, you know, he thought about writing, but that wasn't really right. And then he thought about trying to film something. And, and, and he actually, I think, did try to film something. And he famously filmed something with uh, Shelley Glashow, a famous physicist, and had no sound. And... I heard about him. I uh, was in the narrative fiction world and I was actually trying to get a script made. And, you know, I was always interested in 
somehow doing something in film that related to science. I thought it was going to come from the fictional world. I thought I would write something about science. And I heard about this guy trying to make a documentary about this. And the people who told me about it said, okay, he has no film experience. It's an experiment. They don't know if it's going to work. They don't know if they'll find anything. Eh, we're not going to get involved. And I said, that sounds great. <laughs> and, um, and I met David in uh, 2007. So I heard about it. I, he was at CERN. I tracked him down. And we talked about it. For me, I was very clear from the beginning, I did not want to make a typical science documentary. I wanted to use the narrative skills that I had in filmmaking, make it character-based, um, you know, try to make a dramatic film. And, and that's what David wanted as well. So, so I started really working on it full-time in 2008. We started, you know, trying to get together. Um, Andrew and Carla came on and we, you know, started to try to get some money together. And um, my, the first shoot was in 2008, uh, in September, uh, for First Beam. Um, we finished, finished uh, literally running to the airport with the film um, in 2013, in June of 2013. Um, and in terms of the explosion, um, yes, there was a lot of sensationalist talk about could it create a mini black hole that would destroy the universe. Uh, no physicist was ever worried about this. Um, the, the person who was the biggest promoter of this was a high school science teacher in Hawaii um, who had read part of a paper that said that it could create little black holes but did not read the rest of the paper which said that if it created these black holes they would evaporate. Um, nonetheless, uh, it got so much attention that CERN felt they had to address it, and they actually had two very respected theorists go through all the calculations to show that it was not going to be an issue. In terms of the accident, when the accident happened, they were not doing collisions. Um, they were still first beams. They were just getting beams in one direction and the other. And in fact, the accident happened when they were just testing, raising the energy of one of the beams. And they were trying to raise the energy, and they needed to increase the energy in the magnets to be able to keep them in line. And the, uh, what they believe now is that there was just, as they increased the current in these uh, magnets, uh, one of the welds broke. And it sparked, and it caught the helium, which is used to cool it. You know, it, it ignited that, and it exploded. There were, it had nothing to do with collisions of particles or anything like that at all. It was a very simple, bad weld that did that. Um, the collisions themselves uh, take place in the center of the detectors, and there's no worry that they're going to... They want them to explode, in a sense. You know, uh, that's the whole point. There's no concern. And from the physics community, there was never any concern that, that they were going to do anything that could uh, create a, a problem. I also just to add in terms of some of the um, happy accidents or making um, making your luck or jumping from failure to failure, which I think you know all of them are different ways of saying um, certainly the latter two expressions. Uh, you know that if you're in it for the long run and you believe in it, that you just keep going and good things happen in some way. I think that there there are great backstories that you know partly speak to what documentary filmmaking like this is, is about and, 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 and to this particular subject and the people who, who do it. Um, one of them is, is that we really, we started to raise money for it 
just as the world was, the financial world was melting down. And it turned out that um, we reached out in different ways and, and it was actually uh, people in the finance world who were trained physicists or mathematicians and who still had some had, you know, love of it. And we sent out a bunch of cold letters and, you know, one or two people actually opened them, you know, and remembered back to, you know, and, and got excited. And that started a ball rolling that really enabled us to do the uh, initial shooting. And once we got a certain ball rolling, um, it, was, it was easier to raise money, both in terms of investment and in terms of um, philanthropic and foundation dollars. Um, another act, another, it, this film could have gone in so many directions, and that period... Um, during the um, hiatus when the machine had had the accident and was being repaired, which was over 18 months, there was a great, um, there was certainly depression, some depression and some sense of what does this mean? Are we ever going to get it up again? And all those issues. But there's also a great deal of natural ebullience and curiosity and kind of a, you know, sort of energizer bunny. You know, we, 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 we would like, you know, David would say, David and Mark, you know, oh, there's, there's something we really should film. This may be a way to get at it, a new way to analyze the data. It's going on at NYU, or there's a, a, um, a dark matter experiment. The results of them are going to be um, described at a conference in Santa Barbara. And we have some great footage, which eventually is going to be put to use, but really does reflect a very natural buoyancy on the part of the scientists, the theorists. Then there's the elephant in the room, which we, we have spoken about, Mark did, but which is um, that at a certain point we, we, we really could, the science was becoming too difficult for the first editor to really address in a way that, that, that it was, it, the film, we were kind of stalled. And through, um, well, really through Mark's friend, long-term friendship with the brilliant feature editor, Walter Murch, he came in and really started to cut the film in a very different way, and that in a, in a, in a more kind of action film way. And then we had the, we never anticipated we'd have the million dollar ending within the course of our shooting. And so um, there is, all of those things, together with the characters and um, you know the sense of the story and the way it was shot, I think, all combine to have made it something that is of such broad interest to uh, to non-science audiences. Do you have any of the cutting room floor stuff? On the DVD, do you have any of the outtakes? Well, uh, we actually don't really have a DVD yet, but in principle, it will, yes. I mean, it, it is online. So uh, there's, there's, I mean, I, it's difficult to estimate exactly how much footage I have, but I mean, it's in the neighborhood of 300, 400 hours of material, and you know, it's 99 minutes. So there is a lot that's out of it. Some very complete, fairly well-edited sequences. Uh, one of them has definitely been cut and is available online. I mean, actually, on our website right now, you can order sort of a, a, an enhanced download that includes that and a couple of other things. And, and we are, we're hoping that there will be some additional things as well. Um, some of them really were fairly, you know, if, pretty progressed fairly far in terms of the cutting. and. Um, uh, we do hope that we'll be able to use them. 
particlefever.com. www.particlefever.com. Uh, could you say more about how you convinced Sharon to let you in? I mean, why did they allow you to come in to do this whole project? You know, it's interesting. Um, it was not that difficult. People have asked me that. Um, and, and I actually know some people that say that they had difficulty. Uh, in, in general, they're pretty open. Uh, I think we had a, a, a special access, partly because of our physics backgrounds, um, that they were very open in that regard. And the interesting thing was, um, People, you know, have come over. People would typically come over, and they're news crews, you know, that would come over, and they shoot for a day or two, and they shoot certain people, and then they disappear. The fact that I kept going back became the key, um, and that I made certain key alliances right from the very first time I was there. And so typically when you go to CERN, if you go as a, you know, media, for media purposes, they assign you a sort of coordinator who's there. And um, after the first time I was there, uh, they stopped coming with me because they basically knew I knew who I was going to see. I was seeing very responsible people. And, um, and at that point, all I had to do was say, I'm coming at this point. And they'd say, okay, we'll leave you a pass. And then I just would go wherever I wanted. And, I, and so again, I think it was a function of the fact that I had key uh, people involved that they knew were responsible and then I kept coming back again and again and again and in fact I came back so much that at a certain point I think people thought I worked there actually um, they didn't realize that I didn't actually live there all the time but I was really so integrated that um, uh, nobody even paid any attention when I was there and um, you know that really ended up being what what counted and and for our Physicists, I think that also, you know, when you talk to them, why they opened up to us so much was they also saw the persistence there. You know, they were, you know, they knew that I was going to be back again. <laughs> um, and so they, if they didn't say it then, I'm going to get them to say it another time. So they might as well just do it. And they ended up really being an incredible, um, you know, an incredible ally to the whole thing. Not only the physicists, but CERN itself has an extensive media department. And, you know, they do all these official things. They film everything. Um, and they got very excited by the fact that I was making a feature film. I mean, it, I actually don't know which was more important, whether I had a physics background or whether that I had worked on the talented Mr. Ripley, which they all seemed to love. And, uh, you know, the fact that they, that, you know, I somehow had this film part to me was something they hadn't really dealt with before. And so they were very open to that and they they would uh, collaborate. And so the media department, you know, they loved the idea that somebody was making a real feature film and they became, in a sense, a second and third unit for me. Uh, that I could, you know, we ourselves were usually just a very small crew, but I could have them cover other things for me and they all, um, they all put it together. There, there's a bigger question involved, I think, which is that um, we always pitch the film as what if there had been cameras inside Los Alamos? And I think we, we all want, we wanted to know as filmmakers, but we thought that the public would want to hear what were the inside discussions? Were there moral questions? The question of, you know, how many scientists believe in God or do they, do they not believe in God or what do they believe in? And what do they think they're doing? What is the beauty in it for them? That was something that I think um, 
we were very aware of going in, and I think that the scientists, both in university settings and at CERN itself, also, they wanted, uh, they wanted Mark there. They wanted people to hear them uh, talking about some of those bigger questions that they know they share with everybody else. Uh, do you have uh, an upcoming project or a future project that you're working on, or are you primarily working on marketing and distributing this film? Um, I actually am working on another project, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's fiction. Uh, but it's actually interesting because, you know, as Andrew says, you know, we, we talked about it being Los Alamos. For me, people have said, well, what would you, you know, what do you want to do? If I, somebody said, if I had all the money in the world, what would I do as my next documentary? And I said, well, it's not, not a matter of money. I'd like to go back in the time. And I'd like to go back to when Watson and Crick discovered DNA. And I think that's another place where it would have been great to have cameras. And it turns out that there's a book that I'm really interested in. Um, it's called The Goldbug Variations if anybody's heard about it, by Richard Powers. Yeah, and, um, and it is about molecular biology and music. And so this art-science overlap is very dear to me, and um, it turns out that the rights became available, and so that's going to be my next project, I hope. <laughs> and Carla and I have four documentaries that will come out this year, including uh, there's one on Tuesday night at, the, uh, at Lincoln Center. It's called The Zionist Idea, and this shows our crazy curiosity <laughs> goes in so many directions. Um, it's a look at the evolving definition of Jewish statehood from the 19th century through to the present. Um, we're also doing a film on mental health services in the military called Thank You for Your Service, which uh, unusually takes the, um, uh, t in part, takes the point of view of the psychiatrists and, psych psychiatrists and psychologists who actually work within the military. And they went up to the highest levels, including a female general who was head of all mental health services there. We have a film about, a historic film about Gertrude Bell that will probably come out in the fall, who was an explorer, British explorer and diplomat who drew the original borders of Iraq. And we're also working on a film about um, wind power, uh, offshore wind power, um, and the, the struggle to make it happen in the state of New Jersey. A real advocacy film for a change. Please uh, join me in thanking Andrew, Carla, and Mark, not only for their generous time today, but for creating a really brilliantly inspiring film that, that I think, from our perspective of the Helix Center, is, is sort of the uh, quintessence of fusing art and science, as you do. So thank you.